Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. It's been 3,352 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 433 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukrainian forces continue to set conditions for a future offensive, targeting surveillance, electronic warfare, and air defenses, while using reconnaissance and reconnaissance in force to probe Russian defense in multiple locations. Second, Ukrainian forces continue to set conditions to complete retrograde operations in Bakhmut and end their defense of the city despite a limited counterattack to take back positions in the northern part of the city and at the medical college. Third, the heaviest fighting continues to be limited to the Bakhmut and Marinka operational areas. Fourth, due to continued poor weather, flooding, and saturated soil, we find it unlikely that Ukrainian offensive operations can start before mid-May. Fifth, We maintain that Russian offensive operations in the Svatva and Kremina operational areas have culminated. Sixth, the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and have exhausted their combat potential except in the Bakhmut operational area. And finally, the use of alternative private military companies and the lack of support by Russian airborne or VDV forces caused PMC Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin to lash out at the Kremlin and Russian Ministry of Defense morning reports no longer mention the PMC, indicating that the rift has reopened. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. In the Dvorichna operational area, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, and the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ukrainian positions in Liman Pirshi have been shelled for the fifth day in a row. The Russian MOD also reported that Ukrainian forces made probing attacks using reconnaissance and reconnaissance in force near Masyutivka and Sinkivka. In the Kupyansk operational area, the Russian MOD reported fighting between squad or platoon-sized units near Kislivka. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. After weeks of reduced activity, Russian forces launched several localized attacks on the Luhansk axis, while Ukrainian forces continued to probe Russian defenses. The front remains frozen, with only minor changes since early March. In the Svatova operational area, 
The GSAFU and Russian MOD reported positional fighting near Novoselivske with no change in the situation. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces probed Russian defenses in the area of Rajhorodka. In the Kremina operational area, Russian sources reported positional fighting east of Nevsky, while Russian mercenary millblogger Rybar reported positional fighting west of Ploshanka. Multiple Russian sources reported their troops attempted to advance from the western edge of the Kremina forests in the direction of Yampolivka and Terni without success. Ukrainian sources reported continued positional fighting in the Serebriansky woods. In the Lysychansk operational area, Russian forces attempted to improve their positions east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, and were unsuccessful. In northeast Donetsk, in Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces launched a limited counterattack on positions that PMC Wagner recently captured but couldn't consolidate their defense. Ukrainian advances were noted in the northern part of the city south of Rose Alley, the Pivnichny Reservoir, and the west-central part of the city at the Medical College. A geolocated video showed that the T-504 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, remains open with two-way traffic on the paved road, while travel to Ivanivsky remains challenging. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby told reporters that Russia's offensive on Bakhmut has, quote, stalled and failed. Some assessment? Russian forces will eventually capture Bakhmut, but the victory, as in Mariupol, Severodonetsk, and Lysychansk, will be Pyrrhic. With PMZ Wagner becoming an ineffective force in Ukraine and the stunning waste of military resources for more than nine months on a city that lost its military value in September 2022, Kirby is correct that history will look at the battle for Bakhmut as a failure for the Russian Federation. The Ukrainian counterattack yesterday was opportunistic. With weather conditions improving, if Kyiv's strategy is to delay its retrograde operation until a larger offensive can be launched somewhere in the theater of war, that now appears to be an achievable goal. Fun fact, it has been 90 days since Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin mocked Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's declaration that Bakhmut would never be surrendered without a fight. Since Prigozhin made his statement, the Russian winter offensive failed, and, according to the Wagner leader, the PMC is on the brink of moving to non-existence in Ukraine. Once again, our assessment that Prigozhin's statement would age like room-temperature milk was accurate. General Oleksandr Sirsky, commander of Operational Command East, or OKE, visited with his troops in western Bakhmut, showing a continued commitment to his troops on the front line. It is worth noting the Ukrainian troops looked exhausted during his review. The Russian MOD reported they executed 64 fire missions, while Army Aviation and the Russian Air Force, or VKS, carried out six close air support sorties. Northwest of Bakhmut, PMC Wagner led more limited attacks in the directions of Bohdanivka and Hromova without success. The T-506 Highway G-Lock remains operational, according to Colonel Pavlo Palisa, commander of the 93rd Motor Infantry Brigade. In the northern part of Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces reportedly pushed Russian forces out of the single-family homes near Hospital No. 2. In west-central Bakhmut, 
Ukrainian forces were able to retake several buildings in the medical college complex. South of Ivanivsky, PMZ Wagner continued attempts to advance on the critical logistics node without success. Ukrainian Colonel Palisa, addressing the 93rd Motor Infantry Brigade members, expressed his gratitude for his unit holding their assigned defensive lines since January 2023, saying, quote, In January of this year, after a short break, the soldiers of the brigade entered the city again. It seemed that we would be able to hold out for only a few weeks. The Kremlin soldiers spared neither their own people nor ammunition. They simply razed the city to the ground, leaving the people, he means civilians, without their homes. But it's been four months and we're still here. End quote. In the Kostyantanivka operational direction, PMC Wagner continued attempts to recapture positions west of the Siversky-Donetsk Donbass Canal that Russian VDV forces lost in late March and early April. Attacks in the direction of Predtechine and Oleksandro Shultine were repulsed. In southwest Donetsk, rain with urban and stream flooding continued to impact the operational tempo. The front remains frozen. In the Avdiivka operational area, the 1st Army Corps continued direct attacks on Ukrainian defensive positions in Avdiivka from Krutabalka, Kamyanka, and Vesele without success. Rybar claimed a Russian advance from Kamyanka captured a trench line south of the village. Ukrainian officials reported three civilians died between April 28th and 30th after becoming trapped due to Russian artillery and airstrikes on the city. In two incidents, rescuers knew that survivors were trapped in the rubble, but heavy equipment was required for a technical rescue that could not be brought into the city due to constant Russian attacks. An 81-year-old pensioner was among the victims. Despite the attacks, civilians remain in the city. The group represents pro-Russian residents awaiting what they view as liberation, farmers and pensioners who don't want to abandon their livestock, the stubborn, poor, and the disabled. Russian forces attempted to regain positions lost between Vodyana and Sieverne, taking back one defensive position. The 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Pervomaiskei from the south through the open fields and predictably suffered heavy losses. In the Marinka operational area, fighting continued on the western side of Druzhby Avenue, with Ukrainian forces falling back one block. In the Wuhlidar operational area, the Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces used reconnaissance in force to probe Russian defenses near Solodka. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to Zaporizhia. On May 1st, a new video recording captured a HIMARS strike in Russian-occupied Tokmak. Local insurgents reported that details would be coming today. In Russian-occupied Mikhailivka, the headquarters of a Russian unit were also hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, according to the exiled mayor of Melitopol, Ivan Fedorov. Russian forces launched 56 fire missions, and the VKS carried out two airstrikes on the Zaporizhia line of conflict. An airstrike on Tuliapola wounded three civilians. 
there was still no update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, in Sevastopol, Russian air defenses shot down a Ukrainian drone. No damage was reported. In western and central Ukraine, additional video evidence from Pavlohrad and geolocation work confirmed that Russian forces targeted an area storing 1,800 tons of expired solid rocket fuel awaiting disposal. There is no evidence that a cache of air defense missiles was destroyed in the blast, and the massive railroad yards were not targeted. The rocket fuel was stored 3.5 kilometers northeast of the chemical plant, 4 kilometers north of the rail yards, and 7 kilometers from the center of Pavlorad. The new video from a security camera was recorded 2.3 kilometers, that's about 1.4 miles, from the storage area and shows two explosions. As with most of the photos and videos we reference here on the podcast, we do link to the video in our full situation report on Patreon, but fair warning, the second explosion is very loud, so use caution listening to the video clip with headphones, or in public. A smaller blast was followed by a massive explosion to the right of the initial strike 22 seconds later. The streams of smoke that appear in the shorter videos were caused by flaming debris falling from the main blast area, not rising. At 48 seconds, a small flash can be seen to the left of the main explosion. The video is over two minutes long, and there isn't any visual or audio data that support Russian claims of a large ammunition depot being destroyed. Further, even Russian millblogger Rybar indicated the blast was rocket fuel. There is still conflicting information on what weapon was used. Ukrainian officials claim to have intercepted seven missiles, indicating this was an unreported cruise or guided missile strike, and two more missiles reached the stored rocket fuel. In Pavlorod, 80 private homes were flattened and 24 high-rise buildings, nine schools, a pharmacy, a bank, and a hostel were damaged. In the surrounding towns of Verbkivska, Yurhivska, and Mezhritska, 50 homes, 5 schools, a hospital, and a cultural center were damaged by the shockwave. In Dnipro, local officials reported that electrical infrastructure damaged in a separate missile attack was partially restored, and repair work was ongoing. In north and northeastern Ukraine, in the town of Luzinivka in Cherniv, two Russian Fab 500 SE GLONASS-guided glide bombs struck a school. A child using the adjacent playground was killed and two adults were wounded. In Sumy, the Hromadas of Bilopilia, Shalahin, Yunakivka, and Seredina Buda were hit by mortar and artillery rounds. No significant damage was reported, with Russian troops shelling 15 villages along the border. On the Russian front in Suzaninsky, Leningrad, saboteurs destroyed electrical infrastructure, collapsing utility towers. The power lines are a new installation, and local officials claim that power was not distributed. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In April, Russian forces captured 15 square kilometers, that's roughly 5.8 square miles, of new territory in Ukraine, mostly in the Bakhmut operational area. In the last 90 days, Russia has captured an area roughly the same size as Detroit, Michigan, or Lubbock, Texas, if you prefer to measure in units of Texas. 
At least one of the cruise missiles in yesterday's attack was a decoy with no warhead. Further examination of the KH-55 missile will need to be made to determine if this was a nuclear-capable version with a dummy warhead for ballast. President Zelensky submitted to the Verkhovna Rada, that's Ukraine's parliament, draft legislation extending martial law and mobilization in Ukraine for another 90 days. The current extension will expire on May 20th. Just 24 hours after Ukrainian Commissioner for Human Rights of the Verkhovna Rada, Dmitry Lubinets, recommended Ukrainians trapped in the occupied territories accept Russian passports as a matter of survival, Irina Verishchuk, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Reintegration of the Temporarily Occupied Territories, has called on residents of the Temporarily Occupied Territories not to accept Russian passports, saying, quote, Do not accept Russian passports. Do not cooperate with the invaders. Leave, if possible. Wait for the armed forces of Ukraine. End quote. White House National Security Advisor spokesperson Kirby said Russian troops had suffered over 100,000 casualties, including 20,000 killed in action, since December 2022 across Ukraine. Kirby's original statement was misunderstood as Bakhmut only and was later clarified as referring to the entirety of Ukraine. He went on to say that over 10,000 Wagner penal mercenaries were among the dead. If true, with, of course, no way to verify the claim, it indicates that approximately 40% of the Mobics and volunteers added to the ranks of various PMCs and the Russian Federation Armed Forces have been killed or wounded in five months. Speaking of The Walking Dead, let's talk about the Russian military mobilization and Mir. Yevgeny Prigozhin released a video allegedly of the armories in the salt mines and bunkers 150 meters under Solidar, claiming there are enough weapons and ammunition to arm one million people. Remember, this is the same Prigozhin who 72 hours ago claimed he was out of ammunition and couldn't supply, quote, his boys. Brand new Thompson submachine guns stored in sealed crates were unearthed among the cases of small arms. During World War II, the United States sent over 140,000 Thompsons and supporting ammunition to the Soviet Union, which were never deployed. In Mariupol, ads have started to appear for PMC Wagner. The Russian MOD confirmed that Vice Admiral Volodymyr Vorobyov has been named the new commander of the Baltic Fleet. This is the 19th senior command change out of the Kremlin since February 24, 2022. Admittedly, we frequently call out unethical behavior by Russian state media journalists. But Mariana Batkovna has been doing what current events consider mundane stories, which will be vital for historians in the future. Consider, for example, this interview with a tank commander from Crimea, recently field-promoted to junior lieutenant after joining the Russian military in 2014 at 15 years old. Quote, I am a platoon commander. I have to sit on top, he means through the commander's hatch, but I sit at the levers. I feel better. I can't live without a tank at all. I can go and buy oil for my wife in a tank. Now I'm in a T-64 BVK, that is a captured Ukrainian tank, I would like a newer tank with computers and electronics. Although I am an officer, I do not consider myself higher or better. I am the same as everyone else. The boys will not listen if I am different. There are few of us left, those who have been there from the very beginning. 
There was Booba, the crew of a T-72. He died on the 14th. A legendary crew, such a pity. Big hello to my son. End quote. Okay, quick sidebar. I won't lie, I am still stuck on the whole join the Russian military at 15 years old part. That aside, and maybe this is a distinctly U.S. American take, but this is giving big Ken Burns documentary energy. Let me, let me, let me try this again. Quote, I am a platoon commander. I have to sit on top, but I sit at the levers. I feel better. I can't live without a tank at all. I can go and buy oil for my wife in a tank. Now I'm in a T-64 BVK. I would like a newer tank with computers and electronics. Although I'm an officer, I do not consider myself higher or better. I am the same as everyone else. The boys will not listen if I am different. There are a few of us left, those who have been from the very beginning. There was Booba, the crew of a T-72. He died on the 14th. A legendary crew. Such a pity. Big hello to my son. End quote. Russia One has joined our list of Russian mercenary journalist organizations. Video from Russia One showed one of their journalists arming fuses on grad rockets and loading them into the launcher. This is a gross ethical violation in a combat zone that endangers the lives of all conflict reporters around the world. As a journalistic organization, we strongly condemn these actions. In geopolitical news, after Twitter deleted several posts by Russian Federation Security Council Deputy Secretary Dmitry Medvedev, he criticized Elon Musk, saying he was, quote, not up to the task, and the social media platform had, quote, caved in to the Ukrainians. In another tweet, Medvedev admitted that the Russians have been using Twitter, quote, to promote our propaganda goals, end quote. While visiting Israel, United States Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, was asked by a Russian reporter with RIA Novosti, quote, We know you don't support the current unlimited and uncontrolled supply of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment? Is it possible if in the near future the U.S. policy regarding sent weaponry to Ukraine will change? End quote. McCarthy's reply was likely not well received by the Kremlin. He responded, quote, did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think from one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it is right. And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. End quote. According to the Times, South Africa asked Russian President Vladimir Putin not to come to the BRICS summit in August because the Johannesburg government will be forced to arrest the Russian leader in compliance with the Rome Statute. Putin was told he could attend virtually through Microsoft Teams and Zoom. The United Nations General Assembly passed Resolution A77L65, entitled Cooperation Between the UN and the Council of Europe. Paragraph 9 of the preamble calls Russia the aggressor in the Russia-Ukraine war and calls for the nation and its leaders to be held accountable. China, Brazil, and India voted in favor of the measure in a blow to Russian soft power, while South Africa abstained. The only nations that voted against the measure were the Russian Federation, Belarus, North Korea, Nicaragua, and Syria.
The Central African Republic, Cuba, Malia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iran, and Sudan also abstained. CSTO nations Armenia and Kazakhstan supported the measure. The Russian information space was calling China's vote a betrayal. On Saturday, Turkey closed its airspace to low-cost Armenian airline Fly One Armenia without warning. The domestic Armen Press news agency reported Adam Ananyan, the carrier's chairman, said, quote, For reasons incomprehensible to us and without any visible grounds, Turkish aviation authorities canceled the permission previously granted to the Fly One Armenia airline to operate flights to Europe through Turkish airspace, end quote. Fly One was created in partnership with the Moldovan airline of the same name and operates five aircraft. Passengers who were airborne when the airspace closure was announced were diverted to the Moldovan city of Chisinau. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.